This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, I'm Dr. Margaret, and welcome back, or welcome to Self Work. We're going to be talking today about do you and your partner really need therapy? I mean, how bad is bad? Now, we're not going to be focusing on abusive relationships because that's a whole other level of trouble and pain that really deserves its own podcast. In fact, the last podcast was on people staying in abusive relationships and why they do. That might interest you. But today, we're going to be talking about very common problems in relationships And again, my focus is always on what you can do about them. First, we'll talk about John Gottman's Four Horsemen of Marital Disaster, four things that could be going on in a relationship that really doom it. We'll touch briefly on making the decision whether to go into individual therapy or if couples therapy is really the best idea. Then we'll talk a little bit about misperceptions, especially about couples work. And we'll also discuss the recognition of what might be behind or underneath those common beliefs. Then I'm going to give you some great books on relationships, some of them you may have heard of, some of them you may not have, because I truly believe that a lot of couples can heal or do better or learn different skills with one another on your own, maybe from listening to a podcast. Then I'll go over an email from a reader about how to deal with a friend's suicide. That's a really serious topic and one that so many people face, of course, usually unexpectedly, and so it can be quite traumatic. So I hope you'll stay and join me. As a marital therapist, there are some words that I love to hear when a couple comes in. They sit down on my couch and they say, well, we came in before there was a real problem. Unfortunately, that is not the norm. I wish it were, but it is not. Many couples don't do maintenance on their relationship, and instead they let the distractions of life, getting a promotion, piles of laundry, figuring out how to make the car run one more year, helping with homework, all those things that are ongoing in our lives. We forget that we need to do maintenance on our marriage or our relationship. And problematic patterns can then begin to entrench themselves. An example I like to use is when heavy rains run down a hill. I'm sure you've all seen that. And then they create really deep gashes in the soil. So when it rains again or when it rains over and over again, the water will tend to travel exactly where the gashes have worn themselves. And behavior and communication between two people is the same. When there's conflict and disappointment, both people can find themselves doing and saying the same thing that they did before, not even really knowing why they're saying it. It's just repetitive patterns. I'll hear things like, I don't know why I can't stop myself, but I say the same hurtful things I've said before and then some. Or, I know if I walk away, she'll get mad, but you know, I do it anyway. I don't know what else to do. People get stuck. And then what happens, of course, Trust gets damaged. You're not sure you even like your partner anymore. Words have been said that are very difficult to forget, and it can feel like it's too late. You can even give yourself permission out of hurt or anger or boredom or whatever it is to look outside your marriage. 
And then detachment begins. You start fantasizing about a fresh start, a new relationship, before you've even attempted to fix what's wrong with the one you're in. John and Julie Gottman, who are famous marital researchers, talked about the four things that they have observed that almost doom a couple. They're hard to turn around. It can be done, but it takes a lot of work. And they have videotaped hundreds of couples, even thousands of couples. Some of these make a lot of sense. They call it the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And of course, the apocalypse is the end of the earth in the New Testament. So they're symbolically saying that they could predict the end of a marriage or relationship. The first one is criticism, people who are overtly critical of another, contempt, and contempt is really the worst one. When you sort of curl your lip when your partner says something and you think disdainfully of them, that's not helpful. Sometimes we, in fact, use labels in order to hold someone in contempt. We call them names and give them a label, narcissist or whiny. Then there's defensiveness, which of course is a big one as well. You're not taking responsibility for what is yours in the relationship. And then the last one is what's called stonewalling. Stonewalling is when you actively or intentionally refuse to communicate with someone. I'm sure you've heard of couples, or sadly, maybe you've done it yourself, that can go days without talking to the other one. And my my observation is that withdrawal is actually the most potent form of control. So stonewalling is all about withdrawal and control. So those four things are what Julie and John Gottman say practically doom a marriage, because once those patterns get entrenched, as we talked about a few minutes ago, then those patterns are difficult to change. I've included a link in the show notes that talks more about Gottman's Four Horsemen. And also, he wrote a book, I think it's called The Seven Basic Principles of Good Marriage or something like that. Anyway, I've included an article about that particular book. And maybe you'd like to read that as well. He makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about why you would come into couples work instead of marital work. There's actually research out there that indicates that if you are very unhappy in your marriage, in fact, if that's your number one problem, and you go into individual therapy, that the rate of divorce is higher when people go into individual than it is when they go into couples. I don't think that's necessarily because a therapist vilifies your partner, although sometimes they might, unfortunately, due to their own issues. I think it has to do more with the support that is innate in a therapeutic relationship. You're being supported for looking at yourself honestly. You're being listened to. So that in and of itself, compared to the very painful relationship you're having with your partner, then it can feel like, well, I don't get this kind of attention at home. There must be something really, really wrong. So I always encourage people who are unhappy in their marriage, they come in, I find out that's their major issue. I'll say, well, would he or she come in and join you? I think we can battle the problem much better together than with you alone. Now, I will say that you can do couples work when you've got one person in the room. But you have to make sure your therapist is not throwing your spouse or your partner under the bus all the time, that he or she, even when only listening to you alone, is trying to paint for you a balanced picture. That's really important. I'll throw in here that I think couples work is 
in many ways more difficult than individual work because it's very hard not to focus on your partner and to see if they're changing or did they do what they said they were going to do in the session or what the therapist suggested. Instead of what what is much better, obviously, is when you keep the focus on yourself. Are you making the changes that you can make? Because that's all you've got control over. Yourself. That's it. You can't control your partner. So I always encourage my couples to think about what they're doing, take responsibility for what they're doing, what comes out of their mouth, how they're acting, the choices they're making. But many people balk at coming into therapy. It's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, because I want people to hear what at least my version of being a therapist is, and hopefully that's open and non-judgmental. They may be so judgmental with themselves, they fear that a therapist will be the same. But let's go over some common misperceptions. First and foremost is therapy involves giving up control. How many times have I heard out in, in the general public, ah, oh, some therapist isn't going to tell me what to do. Therapists don't tell you what to do. I think this sets up the assumption that the therapist has some kind of authority that would set up understandable defensiveness and even a rebellion before you've even met her or him. What a good therapist does is that they have objectivity and experience. They act more like a consultant. I mean, you consult about everything else, right? You consult a plumber. You consult your pastor. You consult your accountant. So a therapist is, is a consultant. It's the same as a, a coach watching your golf swing or a chef tasting food you prepared. They have their insight to offer into your choices, but they don't rule. You're not giving up control. Now, in couples work, of course, you are hearing what the therapist is saying to you and your partner is as well. <laughs> so if the therapist is suggesting that something from your past, for example, has to do with you overreacting or underreacting to something in the present, then your partner is going to hope that that kind of connection may give you some insight and may change your behavior. So I think it's understandable that there can be a sense of some felt pressure when you realize that your partner is hearing exactly what you're hearing. The second misperception involves money, time, and availability. Let's talk about time first. I think everyone has the concept of therapy as you go in and you lie down and you free associate like the old Freudian model of therapy, and it lasts for years and years and years. That is not the way many, many people do therapy nowadays. There are some psychoanalysts out there, and if that's what you want to do, that's the kind of therapy you want to get, then go for it. But there are many, many more therapists who do solution-oriented, much briefer techniques that you're really not seeing them for months and months. Let's talk about money. Some people have insurance, and their insurance will cover therapy. Some people's insurance will not cover therapy. Therapists will often work with you about the financial aspect of your relationship. But one of the things that I would want to remind you is that, yes, therapy does cost money, but so does divorce. And that's a harsh reality. I really think that sometimes people who say that therapy costs too much or they don't want to give up control or whatever it is, is really about an issue with being vulnerable. My father-in-law used to joke, people pay to talk to you. In many ways, you know, his teasing revealed an important point. 
that therapy is all about talk, words. It's, it's really not. Therapy is about a specific kind of relationship. The focus is on you and what you want to change in your life. So your therapist holds your emotions, your hurt, your anger, and helps you work through them. She or he's emotionally present with you. So you're vulnerable. And it's that fear or discomfort with vulnerability that can fuel a defense, I think. In my view, it costs ultimately more to ignore the problem and refuse to consider help. But of course, I am a therapist. However, I've gotten some really good therapy. And at times when I didn't have two nickels to rub together, I paid it out over time. And it was worth it. The third misperception is about confidentiality. People will often say, well, I don't want to talk to someone about my problems because how do I know if she or he's going to keep their mouth shut? When I hear that, what I think is underneath that is shame. Let's say you're fifty dollars or $100,000 in debt or you've got a, an addiction to Xanax or you were abused as a child or you have rituals that you perform every day to cope with your anxiety. These things are hard to admit sometimes. So if I put up a defense about, well, a therapist isn't going to keep what I say to themselves, or I don't want someone else knowing my problems, then nothing will happen or your problem will get worse. It is not that therapists have all the answers. But what we do have is that we've seen hundreds of people over the years. And we remember what worked for them and with them, and we can pass that on to you. We also have specific techniques that are designed to change behavior. And that's where you get your hope. Of course, in couples work, something you may not be wanting to talk about is something your partner thinks is very important to talk about. For example, perhaps you watch porn or you have a drinking problem. That may be something that is hard for you to hear your partner talk about. And yet, again, if your marriage is going to make it, if your partnership is going to make it, then understanding the impact of your behavior on your partner is very important to have compassion for them, to have empathy for them. I can assure you that when someone says, well, I'm about to tell you something you've probably never heard, I shake my head. I've been doing this for over 25 years, and that's pretty hard to do to tell me something I haven't heard as of yet. Some of that actually makes me very sad to think about because people can do horrible things to one another. But my eyes as a therapist have been opened wide. So I hope that if there are problems in your marriage or partnership, that you'll consider couples' work. It can truly deepen your respect and admiration for one another, and especially your trust. Not every therapist does couples' work, and I would definitely ask them if they've gotten training to do couples' work, because it is distinctly different from individual work. But let's say... You don't want to go into couples work, or there's not a therapist near you, or you just can't work it out in your schedules. There are some really good books about improving your relationship, and I've included the links in the show notes to the audiobooks because you're a podcast listener, and so you love to listen. The first book is called The Four Agreements. The second book is How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. Guys usually love that one. And then one that a lot of people probably have heard about is the five love languages. It's a really common sense. In fact, the last two of these books are a lot about common sense. The How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It talks a lot about gender differences and discusses how to work those out. The five love languages talks about 
the five different ways we tend to show our love and we want to receive our love. And those are not always the same. How we want to receive it is usually how we show it, and that may not be getting across to our partner. The Four Agreements is a little more conceptual, but it's beautifully written. But those are three books that I often recommend. I'm sure there are other books out there, but these are the ones that I found to be most practical and helpful. In fact, I've had two couples tell me recently, after I gave them how to improve your marriage without talking about it, that they didn't need to come into therapy anymore because they were so much better. So I did myself out of a job, but that's my job, actually, as a therapist, to do myself out of a job. Now we'll get to today's email. It's from John. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I stumbled on your article. Long story short, I'm extremely blessed with a family and kids that love me. Yet I had a friend and co-worker commit suicide recently. I don't understand how he did it or why. He always seemed to be in the same boat as me. Extremely blessed. But now I find myself kind of envying him. Just feel emotional a lot and depressed and feel like I have no reason to be. This was my immediate response. Morning, John. Your words are more than very concerning. First, of course, you're grieving your friend, and that can take time, especially when it's suicide. But it sounds like that's not the whole story. Having a lot of blessings in your life doesn't heal depression. People don't understand that, but I know that it's true after being a therapist for many years. I would strongly recommend that you pay attention to these feelings of envy that you have. It's a little unclear to me whether you mean envy that he is dead. I'm not sure what you mean by envy, but perhaps what you're saying is not that you're envious that he's dead, but that you're envious that he was able to admit how bad he felt. Those feelings led him to suicide, but I don't think you're saying that. If you're struggling with depression, there's a great book called I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terrence Real. It's about covert depression in men. And then I also gave him a link to a YouTube video I did with a guy who came forward to me and wanting to talk about his hidden depression. That link will also be in your show notes. So I finished up with John by saying, I don't know what might help you, but the way you're feeling isn't normal and can grow into something you don't want. Let me say, dealing with the death of someone who's committed suicide is very complicated Of course, it depends some on whether it's a parent or a child or a friend, how close you were to them, but it can have a ripple effect in the community that can be very, very devastating. You have to be really careful with kids if one of their friends commits suicide that you're paying special attention to how they're doing. There's, of course, grief. There's confusion, anger, guilt. And it can take months or even years to work out all of your feelings. And I'm not so sure that all of them can totally be worked out. There may always be a fairly raw place there. I remember a man whose son had committed suicide due to dealing with chronic schizophrenia that was almost uncontrollable. It took several years for the man to work through his anger with the mental health system that couldn't help his son, as well as his own feelings of guilt that perhaps he could have done something else. He did everything he could possibly do. I think sometimes people can get stuck in guilt because the sadness feels so overwhelming and unbearable that they'd almost rather feel guilty, as if they'd had more control over things, than they would 
to allow their sadness and their loss and their loneliness to be more apparent. You know, thinking about it, perhaps I'll do a podcast on that very topic. I want to thank you for listening today to Self Work, and I certainly hope that it was helpful to you. There are lots of ways of contacting me. I blog weekly at drmargaretrutherford.com. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and some of you have done that, and it's been delightful. I've loved some of the suggestions, so send those suggestions in. And I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. So now I have a couple of requests. I would love for you and ask you to please give me a rating and review. That helps me, especially in iTunes, so that self-work can get the attention of other listeners. Reviews are a little more difficult to leave. I recognize that. But in reading them, people can kind of get a flavor of what this podcast is about. So that really helps. Ratings are great, too. And one last request, subscribe. My subscriptions are growing, and that really makes me feel great. And gives me feedback that this is something people want to hear. So thank you if you've already done that. And I'll thank you if you can find the time to do that for me. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work. Self Work.